right, well, good morning again. If you're getting settled this morning, uh, I would like to say uh, on behalf of our lead pastor, Dr. Chris Moody, who and uh, he and a team that have been on mission in Nepal training pastors, they're on their home uh, leg of the journey now. They should be back sometime this evening and can't wait to hear a testimony from them about, about what's gone on. Uh, but uh, he's asked me to fill in in his stead today, and uh, since I'm the new guy, I've uh, been here about two months, uh, Chris decided to really see what I was made of, and so uh, we are building in our, in our sermon series through the Minor Prophets and leading up to Easter Sunday, which is a couple of Sunday, or I guess three Sundays away from now, uh, and you know, Jesus in his ministry kind of did that same thing. He went and he taught and he, he did miracles, and then he turned and he put his face towards Jerusalem, the Bible says, and he started moving that way. Well, that's where we are in our, in our corporate worship and in our teaching. We're heading to Easter Sunday, and, and, and so Chris is going to, uh, next week, going to teach through Obadiah, and then we're going to be in the book of Jonah come Easter, and there's a great, great Easter message right out of the book of Jonah. So that being said... He said, Nate, I want you to preach on the 26th, and I want you to preach three chapters. And he got a blank stare from me. Uh, and he said, can you do it? And I said, well, are you hazing me, or are you just seeing if, what I'm made of? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, he, he's entrusted me to finish out the book of Amos today. Uh, and so I'm going to make, uh, make my best efforts to do that. Uh, but I'm going to talk fast, because we're going through three chapters. We're not going to read every verse because that would be impossible uh, in our time. And then, so I need you to listen fast and listen well as we go. Can we do that? We'll be, have a partnership here. All right, cool. Well, I, um, I like movies. I like going to the movies. I don't do it as much as I used to because I have small children. Uh, and you, if you've ever had small children, you know that kind of stops. And then at some point, you, you, you get a life again, and you start going to the movies, is what I'm told. Um, but uh, I used to go to the movies, and one of the scariest movies I ever went to for me, was called The Sixth Sense. It was directed by a guy named M. Night Shyamalan. Anybody ever seen any of M. Night Shyamalan's movies? Well, that movie scared me. I literally at one point screamed out loud. I was in probably high school or college at the time. Screamed out loud in the theater like, ah, like that, because someone jumped out or I can't remember exactly what happened, but I literally screamed out loud and all my buddies looked at me like, really? I mean, are you a girl or uh, what's going on here? And, and so... But M. Night Shyamalan's movies are kind of all the same. They all have some kind of supernatural plot, and then at the very end, there's a major plot twist, right? Every movie he makes is kind of that same way. Um, the Sixth Sense, you have The Village. They all have this major plot twist at the end. And I'm not saying go watch them if you don't want to, but, um, but th this is where we're going to frame these chapters. Uh, Amos has been preaching a doom and gloom message to Israel for five chapters now. Uh, he didn't preach in chapters, but we've, you know, uh, it's been written down in chapters now. But there's been this idea of, look, Israel, you have wasted what God has given you. You have taken what God has given you. You've made a mockery of it. And there is a destruction. The day of the Lord is coming. And in chapters 7 and 8, he's going to kind of repeat that. That, hey, you know what? I've given you all these warnings, but the final harvest is here. It's coming. And then at the very end of chapter 9, we're going to have a twist. So that's why I've entitled the sermon, Wait For It, because through this, you're going to be thinking, man, God is mad at these people. But at the, in the end, we're going to see just this kind of character of who God is, that he's patient, he's long-suffering. He is just, but at the same time, he seeks to redeem. All right, so let's get right into it. Amos chapter 7. In this, in this chapter, we're going to see that God has given Amos three visions 
Uh, and he's, his patience for Israel has come to an end. The first of these is a vision of locusts, verses 1 through 3. And, and this says this, This is what the Lord God has showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. The latter growth meaning the final harvest, the summer harvest. They've already harvested the winter crops. They've harvested the spring and they're harvesting the summer. It will be the last harvest of the season. And you're going to see that kind of imagery throughout this, also in chapter 8. The latter growth, he was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Verse 2, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that's the locust had eaten the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? How can Israel stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be. So he's given a vision that locusts would devour the final crop an imagery that Israel would be destroyed. But Amos, interceding on behalf of the people, said, Lord, Israel cannot stand this. It is too small. And it says that the Lord relented. Guys, the first thing I want you to understand about this is that God is patient. God is a patient God. We have seen that. If you have read the Old Testament at all, if you've studied the, the nation of Israel and the divided kingdoms, Israel and Judah, we learn that God is patient with his people. They have turned their back on him time and time again, and he's brought them out of it, and they turn their back, and he's brought them out of it, and they turn and on and on and on. It's called a cycle of rebellion. If you study the Old Testament, there's just a cycle of rebellion. Israel rebels, God brings them back, they repent, they rebel again. It's just a cycle. And we can maybe kind of relate to that in our own lives. I know I can, that I've had cycles of rebellion in my life. But there's times where, you know what, I'm, I'm, where the, I'm where I need to be with the Lord, and there's other times where I completely turn my back on him. But each time he's patient with me, all right? All right, and the second vision he sees here is a fire. And this is not like a fire, like, okay, someone's house burned down. Let, let, let's read this, verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me, the second vision. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Devoured the great deep. This was a fire that boiled the sea. Do you understand that? The great deep is talking about a sea that was devoured and boiled up by this fire, and then it ate the land. This was not a fire that we could create, a bonfire, if you will. This was, this was a demonstration of God's power. Verse 5, and then, Israel, then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. Guys, the other thing is the Lord, or God, is long-suffering. One thing we learn about him is that he's patient and he's long-suffering. He has walked the road with Israel every step of the way. And through their rebellion and when they chose other gods before him and when they took his worship and they perverted it and turned it to, a, and, and turned it to something it wasn't, he was patient with them. He suffered long waiting on them to turn back. And maybe you're in rebellion to God. Maybe you've turned your back on him. Maybe you've gone your own way. I'm here to tell you God's not giving up on you. He's long-suffering. He'll wait on you to the day of your death if need be. All right? He is a long-suffering God. And Amos pleads with him, and God relents. You see, Amos joins a group of intercessors that we see in the Bible who actually prayed that God would relent his hand, and he did it. Moses did it uh, at whenever he came down from the mountain and the, they had built a, a golden calf and were worshiping around it. God said, I'm gonna smite this people and start over. And Moses pleaded for him, and God relented. 
All right, we see uh, Abraham did the same thing for Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he pled for God to spare them, and he relented for a time. And we see Samuel, we see Elijah, and we even see Paul, who, 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 who says, I would take these people's place of unbelief if they would believe. He is interceding for those who he is seeking to save. And James 5, 16 says this, the prayers of a righteous man has great, uh, the prayers of a righteous man have great power. Or if you're a King James version, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. All right, I don't know, know that we use the word availeth anymore, so uh, I had to look up what that meant. Um, but, but it means that they have power. And so if you're asking for God-sized things, you should be, because God may just give them to you. All right? And then we see a third vision here. And this is going to be different. The first two was a vision of destruction, and then it came back. Amos pleaded, and God relented. And we're going to see a difference here. All right, let's, let's look at this in verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. All right. Uh, we have a picture of a plumb line I want to put up here. Uh, if you're not familiar with this term, you probably have a laser level at your house uh, or a level with a little bubble in, in the middle. So we don't, you may use a plumb line. You can go to Lowe's or Home Depot and you can buy what they call a plumb bob now. Uh, but this is how walls were built in Amos's time. It's basically a weight on the bottom of a string. It's real high tech, okay? You get a fishing weight and tie it on the bottom of a string and you go up to a wall and you tie it on the wall, and you can determine if that wall is straight or not. It's a method of determining if that wall is straight. And so God is saying to Amos, I'm coming to these people with my plumb line in hand to determine if they're straight. And when I, by straight, I mean, are they following me? Are they obeying my commands? Are they worshiping me in the way that I've called them to do it? Are they worshiping me with a true heart? Or are they coming before me out of uh, some expectation of, of piety or something, <clears throat> something else? Excuse me. Are they coming to me with the right motives? Here's my line. Can you imagine if God did that with us? God stood next to me and said, Nate, here's, here's my plumb line. Where do you stack up? And I'm here to tell you, aside from the grace of God and aside from Jesus' blood on the cross, I do not stand up to that plumb line, and neither do you. And if we're trying to build our life as straight as we can, we'll never get there because God's plumb line is holiness, and we cannot achieve that. Israel couldn't achieve it either, but they were disobedient, and they didn't care that they couldn't achieve it. It's one thing if you know, you know what, God, I trust fully in you for salvation, for forgiveness, for holiness, because it's something I can't achieve. That's the proper posture to take before God. The improper posture to take is, well, I'm not holy. I'm going to do what I want to kind of justify myself. That's where Israel was. God had given them a prescribed method, and they had changed that, and they had formed it into make, you know, their own image and not God's image. And that's when we get into problems here. All right, let's keep reading. <clears throat> Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac, these false places of worship, the true place of worship for them was in Jerusalem, and they divided the kingdoms and moved their kingdom to the north, uh, and centered around Samaria, and they built high places of worship up in the hills that were false places of worship with false prophets and false sacrifices. These places would be torn down. 
They shall be made desolate, the Bible says, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, who is the king of Israel, with the sword. Guys, God is serious about idolatry. God is serious about his commands. And we, when we play games with him, then this is maybe the result. Israel was playing games with God, and the, the result was, look, I'm about, to, I'm about to crumble everything you hold dear because I'm supposed to be what you're holding dear. All right? And so that's a hard message. Can you imagine being a southern boy uh, like, like, like Amos, uh, a herdsman and a tender of trees, and going to the king and the king's priest and saying, look, God is about to strike you down. That place of worship, that king's temple that you worship in, it's about to come to the ground. Can you imagine that? You can imagine that's an unpopular message. right? If I came in, <clears throat> into your house and I preached something like that, you wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like me. That's okay, all right? And so this is, what, this is the, the reply here, all right? The prophet is going to be persecuted here. All right, let's look at that. Verse 10 through 13, we see that Amaziah, who is the priest of Bethel, uh, who is the false priest, not a real priest, but in this false place of worship they set up at Bethel, he says this in verse 10. Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. So Amaziah was reporting this to the king, and then he goes to Amos and says this. Verse 12, oh, seer. You can, he's like kind of mocking him. Look here, country boy. Oh, seer, country seer, go away from us here. I'm the king's royal priest. Your message is no good here. If you've ever spoken the truth of God, you've probably received a rebuke like that. Look here, you ignorant person. I'm studied. I, I know science. I know this. I know that. Your little faith talk is no good here. I, I got cussed out one time at a university in Houston when I was there. Uh, I was asked to speak at a BSM luncheon, and it was out in the middle of this uh, courtyard, uh, and it was free pizza, so anybody came, professors came. Well, a couple of uh, kind of philosophy professors came, and then after my talk, they started grilling me with questions, and I kept answering their questions. It's like one of those times the Holy Spirit literally gives you the words to say. It was just rapid-fire secession. They were coming at me with everything, and I was like, come at me, bro. And then, like, you know, they just, I, just kept, uh, I just kept like quoting Scripture to them, and they got so incensed at me at the end that they started, you know, dropping bad words on me. And this is in the middle of 100 people, students, and these are professors cussing me out in front of the whole thing. I've never been, uh, that's happened to me once. But, guys, when you speak the truth, sometimes it's not going to be a popular message. You see, Jesus came, he said, I, I came to be a dividing line. The gospel is a dividing line. It divides between righteousness and unrighteousness. And people who love unrighteousness will not climb over that to get to righteousness, right? That's a stumbling block for them. It doesn't have to be our attitude. We shouldn't be a stumbling block. But sometimes the message is, and sometimes it's going to be unpopular, and that's okay. The gospel is not politically correct. All right. And so Amaziah rebuked him. Oh, seer, country boy, go on back to, to Judah. He says, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread. Go home and eat. Go home and eat your bread down there. Don't, don't, don't peddle your message here. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for this is the king's sanctuary, 
and it's the temple of the kingdom. Amos' response, I love this. Let's look at this. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a prophet's son, meaning I was not trained by a prophet. Some of you in here are a professional trade, uh, and you were trained by a master electrician or a master plumber or something like that, and so you trained under someone uh, who taught you that trade. Amos was not trained by another prophet. He was called by God only. He was a shepherd. He was tending for trees, and God called him out of that, and he's going to say that right here. He says, the Lord took me. He says, I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from the following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. He said, look, you're right. I am a country preacher. I am not qualified to stand before you and share this message, but God has called me to do it. If you would, in verse 15, underline there, in my Bible it says, but the Lord took me. That's what mattered. The calling in Amos' life was to go to the northern kingdom of Israel and bring prophecy. And God has put a calling in your life as well. And when the rubber hits the road and when you start having critics come against you and when the, 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 the arrows of the enemy are at you, that is when you go back to, but the Lord has called me to do it. There's been times in ministry where I wanted to quit. I'm here to tell you. I've closed the door in my office and cried, not here yet, uh, thankfully. You've all been great. Um, <laughs> but there's been times where I just closed the door and have cried in my office. And I'm a big guy, and that's, that's not normal for big, burly dudes to do. And I wanted to quit. But in those times, I was reminded of God's calling in my life. And it's the same for you. I don't care if you're an engineer at Exxon or a teacher or a mom who stays at home and, and wants to pull her hair out each day. God has called you to himself, and he has called you for a purpose. And when those critics rise up, when the flame gets hot, cling to your calling. And then Isaiah just literally, I mean, not Isaiah, Amos drops the mic totally on uh, Amaziah here, verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile from this land. Say what you want against me, Amaziah, but God's word has already been spoken. This is what's going to happen. And I can imagine him just kind of turning, kicking the dust off his sandals and walking out. Because God's word is the ultimate truth. And if God's word says it, then we believe it. Uh, and that's, that's where Amos was. All right, cool. Let's, let's roll on to chapter 8. So there's this kind of interaction, and then the Lord gives him another vision. And this time, it's, uh, it's one that Isaiah could understand, obviously. Uh, being a farmer, being a person who tended to figs, uh, he's going to give him a vision of a basket of fruit. All right, and a couple of things. Uh, let's read verses 1 through 3. We're not going to read all these verses here. He says, this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit, the last harvest, remember. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are overthrown everywhere. There is silence. 
There are so many dead people that all there is is silence. I imagine it like a medieval times when there was a great battle, and at the end of it, all you heard was just nothing because the, the field was just littered with dead man's bones. That's kind of the picture I'm getting here. This is what God is going to bring uh, on Israel. And so the end is coming. But why is the end coming? That's the question. He prescribes to them, this is why the end is coming. Verses four through six. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? Making money to them was more important than their worship. Whenever the, the, the religious festivals and whenever the Sabbath, they were just counting down the days or counting down the minutes so it was over so they can go and make a, make a buck. So they could go and sell their wares. Guys, I've been guilty of that. Uh, when is this pastor going to quit, quit preaching? I'm ready to go watch a Cowboys game. Right? Man, you know what? I, I want to beat, beat the Methodist to Luby's today. You know, or whatever. Y'all, do we even go to Luby's anymore? That, that's, that's what we used to do when I was a kid, but... I'm not sure people go to Luby's anymore, but, but we, how many times have we done that? We've been so selfish when it comes to God and our own worship that the things of, of our own life become more important than what God might be doing in, in our midst. It's, it's a hard truth, but it's the truth. We can be too busy for God. And, we're, and I work with teenagers a lot, and they're the busiest group of, of people in, in the history of the world. You know that? They're more programmed, they're more prescribed, they have uh, more strains on them, they have a tougher time to get into college, they've got to do this, that, one, two, three, four, five, you name it. They're the busiest generation in the history of, of planet Earth, right? And I wonder if we don't slow down a little bit, if we might miss what God could do uh, in our midst. I'm speaking to families with teenagers because that's kind of near and dear to me here, but it's the same thing, I have a seven-year-old kid, it's already starting, Discipline's there. Make time for the Lord. Make him your priority. All right, why is the end coming? Verse four, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor to the land of the end. I already read that, didn't I? Verse six, or second half of verse five, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. In other words, we're gonna give you a small amount of flour and charge you a large amount of money for it. They were dishonest in their, in their business. Not only were they wanting to do business on the Sabbath and during religious festivals, but now they wanted to cheat people and give them an unfair price in the marketplace. And they dealt deceitfully with false balances, taking money, uh, usury uh, of the poor, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They were so poor they couldn't even afford a pair of shoes. And sell the chaff of the wheat, not the good part, not the fruit, but the part that dies away when you get the fruit. That's what they were selling, all right? And it's simple, that there's two tables of the law. If we look into the 10 commandments, so there's two tables of the law there, if you will. The first table of the law deals with our relationship with God. Israel had violated the relationship between them and God. They had chosen false worship, they had chosen themselves and they have tried to make God into their own image and how they wanted him. When they built an idol out of golden, you know, a golden calf or whatever, they're simply trying to make God fit into their little paradigm. And guess what? We may not go home, and probably none of you are going to chisel out a statue of, of a calf when you get home, 
but we as a nation have been very guilty of this as well. We try to take God and we try to fit him into a paradigm that fits our life. And I know I've done it. Uh, I grew up going, going into uh, being a part of the church and my parents are godly people and they raised me the right way. And uh, I went to the university. Uh, I went to a Christian university. I, I was a big baseball player. I thought I was, you know, hot stuff. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of that there where people would say, you know, I'm a, everyone there was a Christian, quote unquote. Um, but I kind of made worship of God and a life lived according to the gospel into what I wanted it to be, which was a moralistic view of the world with no actual fruit. And that's what I was. As long as I look good on the outside, then I can do whatever I want on the inside. I can be whoever I really want to be and still claim to be who God has called me to be on the outside. And that, friends, is the worst place to be. When the outside of the cup is clean and the inside of the cup is filthy, that's a, that's a terrible place to be. And I'm here to tell you that God brought me out of that, praise the Lord. But the way he did that was by a friend who was actually living out his faith, and he invited me to go to a, a, a worship service with him on a Sunday morning. I was sleeping in every Sunday. Uh, I had gone to church literally every Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday night and RA camp and GA camp and everything else, if you're old enough to remember RA camp. Um, and... Um, I, that was who I was. Uh, and when I got to college, I said, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to take off a few weeks to see what that's all about. And my friend invited me, and I saw something in my friend that was different than me. Um, and at the end of the worship service, my face was on the floor at the front of the church with tears in the carpet. And realizing what I was in my heart was not who I, say, who I was saying I was on the outside. Guys, and that's, we can't be that. Integrity has got to be who we are as a people. Integrity in our relationships. If, you, if, you're, if you're not doing well, you don't have to say that you are doing well. And if you're messed up inside, you don't have to say, I'm okay. Because this is a people here who want to get you where you need to be with God. We want to help you. We want to come alongside you because all of us have been there in that same exact place. And that's the truth. And for a long time, people in, in, in our nation have put on a good face and, and gone into worship and walked out and been something completely different. And we cannot be that. We must be the same person in this pew that we are at our workplace, in our homes, and in the community, on our teams, in our schools, in our organizations, whatever. We must be the same redeemed, born again, uh, led by the Spirit person that we are here, that we are everywhere else. We must be. Our relationship with God uh, is, is number one. And then the direct result of that, if our relationship with God is right, then our relationship with others is going to be right as well. That's your next blank there. The second table of the law deals with relationship with others. You should not steal. You should not covet your neighbor's property, on and on and on, right? So the first table is between us and God. The second table is between us and with others. And guys, they, they, they had exploited the poor. Chris spoke extensively. Mark even spoke about it last week, about how they had just exploited the poor to gain money. The rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. They made low-quality items, and they sold them for high-quality price. They were selling chaff mixed in with the wheat. And like I said before, integrity in all things should be a hallmark of our people. At your workplace, you should be a person of integrity. Your employer shouldn't be worrying about, am I going to lose money because this person's employed with me? If I go away for a week, are things going to get jacked up in that week? Or when I come back, are they going to be how they were before? 
Or can I trust this person to lead others? That shouldn't be questions our bosses are asking of us. It should be this person, whatever reason, they may not know you're a Christian. You may not be able to tell them you're a Christian there, but they know this person right here, when they do their job, they do it well, and they do it exactly how I asked them to do, and there's no question about it. As in the marketplace is where our witness is. Our witness is not necessarily right in here. It is out in our communities. Do we have integrity in our communities? Do we have integrity in our, in our marketplaces? And if we do, we're going to have a positive witness. All right? And then he says how the end was coming. He says the end is coming. He says the end was near. And then he says how the end was coming. And they gave, he gives four, uh, four visions here. Verse 80 talks about an earthquake where the earth would rise and fall like the falling of the Nile River. The Nile River in August, about August of every year, it's been a flooding season uh, in, uh, from May to August. And then all that water trickles down, or really it trickles up. If you, if you know the Nile River, it actually flows to the north. Um, and it's a little bit different. But about August every year, the Nile River floods over its banks 20 to 30 feet higher than normal. So it's an immense flood each year. And there's a rising and a falling. And he's saying an earthquake will come that's like that, like the rising and falling of the Nile. If you can imagine the earth beneath your feet right now rising and falling 20 to 30 feet, that's a God-sized earthquake. And he says that darkness will fall over the land in verse 9. History tells us this actually happens. 763 BC, if you study astronomy all the way back, you see there is an eclipse that occurs. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Uh, and, and, and just a side note here, guys. The Bible does not need to hide from history. The Bible does not need to hide from science. You know that? Stuff like this is littered throughout the Bible. Stuff that when God said this has happened, it has actually happened. And the more we learn about science, the more we learn about history, the more the Bible has actually been proven to be true. The longest time it was, well, there is no city of Jericho. It can't be found. Well, guess what? They just found it recently. You know what? They, they found in, in, in Africa, they had taken parts of the Bible and they had written it on little strips of paper and they had wrapped it around mummies. And so they found these mummies and they started un, unrolling them and they said, wow, there's something written on this. It was actually pieces of the Bible, some of the earliest fragments of the Gospel of Matthew that we have. Stuff like this is happening on a daily basis. Maybe not a daily basis, but it's happening. All right? And then he says that he's going to bring, be, he gives a vision of a funeral from verse 10. He said there'll be mourning and there'll be sackcloth on people's backs and there'll be lots of bald heads, meaning that people shave their head out of mourning as one of their practices. There would be no celebrations. It would be just dirges and mourning. And then finally, and this is the worst one, he brings a famine. And it's not a dry season where there's no rain. No, he's talking about a famine where there will be no word from the Lord. And this is by far the worst. You can, you can make it through a famine if God's walking by your side. And you can make it through an earthquake if God's there to say to you, it's going to be okay. Cling to my word. Here's my vision. Here's what's going on. But imagine a time when you have to go through all that stuff and God's not there. There is no vision. There is no prophecy. There is no priest. There is no word from the Lord. That is literally the worst thing. Complete separation from God and his word. Guys, that's what hell is going to be like. Not for those who have trusted in Christ, but for those who have rejected him. It's where God has no influence. He has turned his back. He has forsaken everything. That's the worst part. Matthew 4.4 4 says this. 
says that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Guys, if you have all the bread in the world and you have no word from God, then you're still hungry. And that's the truth. Eleven through fourteen. I want to read something out of there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst or water, but hearing the words of the Lord. And listen to this. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and they shall run. That's the Mediterranean uh, and the Sea of Galilee. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Guys, there are people outside in our world today who are running to and fro, north and east, south and west, to try to find what God can give them, and they're looking for it in any manner of places. They may be looking for it in a substance. They may be looking for it in a human relationship. They may be looking for it in a corporate ladder. They may be looking for it in uh, possessions. They may be looking for it in uh, you name it. But they will not find it. But by hearing the word of the Lord and hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, there, what you're looking for can actually be found. Forgiveness of sins, fulfillment of your soul, peace at night when you lay your head down on the pillow. Those things come from a relationship with Jesus and they can't be found anywhere else. And then God's final words as we, as we finish up here. Amos chapter nine. He gives four affirmations here and we're not gonna read all of these, but, but he says this in verse one, he says that I will strike. I will strike. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with a sword. And it's a picture of the temple crumbling in on top of the people. The thing they had built for themselves in their own image had now crumbled down upon them and brought their destruction. And he says in verse 2, I will search that there's no hiding from this. There's no hiding from God when his will comes about. When the day of the Lord hits, there will be no place to hide. There will be no nuclear fallout shelter. I like watching that show on TV where they build the, you know, the, the, the bunkers and stuff like that, and they, you know, they got food stacked up in there for 20 years and all the ammunition and rifles, and uh, that's kind of fascinating to me, but on the day of the Lord when he returns, there will be no hiding from him. And frankly, guys, there's no hiding from him now. Trying to hide from the Lord is a futile effort. We can convince ourselves that we're doing it, but at the, we always know there's nothing in my heart, there's nothing in my mind, there's no words I've said, there's no thing that I've done that God doesn't know about. And that may scare you, that may frighten you, that may intimidate you, but I'll say this, for me, that's an encouragement. Because I know that even though he knows the things I've said and he knows the things I've done and he knows what I think and he knows what's in my heart, that he sent his son to the cross anyway. And then if I put my faith in him, that I can still have what he has to offer. I can still have his spirit in my life. I can still have life eternal. I can still have um, life uh, abundant while I'm here. That's still available to me even though he knows all that I've done if I put my faith in him. So maybe you're on either side of that fence. That frightens you. I hope it encourages you. I hope that's your testimony that even though I was this way, God loved me still the same. 
He says, I will strike, I will search, I will destroy. Nine times in, in Amos uses the term Lord of hosts, which gives this picture of a commander of armies of heaven and earth, the one who brings armies of destruction. That's, that, that's an interesting uh, terminology there. God will not tolerate idolatry among his people. Here's what A.W. Tozer says about idolatry. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And so when we think about God in a way that is contrary to who he actually is and contrary to what his word says, then our life begins to look a little bit different than what he actually is and who God has actually said he is. He begins to reflect in a different manner. And we think about God wrong, then we live about God. We live for God wrong. You understand this? This is what Israel did. They, they thought, okay, God, yeah, he's patient. He's long-suffering. He will never bring destruction on us. He'll keep forgiving us over and over and over and over and over again. And ultimately, he has told them time and time again that one day there will be a destruction. One day the, the line of David was going to crumble. One day the, Babylon, the Babylonians were going to come in and capture the city of Samaria. And then later, several other nations are going to come after them. And even today, there is no Davidic king. There is no priest. There is no sacrificial worship. The temple is, is owned by the Muslims. Okay, The temple mount's controlled by, by the Muslims to this day. But he says this, and finally, this is, this is what we've been waiting for. This is our M. Night Shyamalan moment here, guys. He says that I will restore them. He has wrought destruction for nine and three-quarter chapters here, right? Or eight and three-quarter chapters. I'm not good at math. Um, but he has wrought destruction on these people throughout this, this word. But he says this at the end, verses 11 through 15. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I will raise up the line of David is what he was saying the line that I created, the Davidic line of kings, the royal line of kings who will ultimately sit on the throne forever. I will raise them up. And there's a reason that, jo that Jesus was born to Joseph and there's a reason that he was born in Bethlehem and it's because he's of the line of David. He is of the tribe of Judah. And that when he sits on his throne eternally, he will be fulfilling what God has said throughout the Old Testament, that there will be a king in the line of David eternally. And his name is Jesus. It will be restored. Guys, there is a bright future for Israel and Judah ahead. It may not be in the present, but in the future, they will have their king eternal. Their Messiah will reign. Our Messiah is reigning. Thank you. Look at these words, and this is where I want to end it up here. The last verse. Verse 15. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them. And then this last part is what I want to look at. It says, the Lord your God. Has God ever forsaken Israel? No. He says here at the very end, he says, I am the Lord your God. 
You've done wrong. I'm angry at you. You've sinned. You've, your wickedness has driven you away from me. You have chosen false idols and false gods over me, yet I'm going to restore you one day, and I'm going to uphold my end of the covenant that I made with you, even though you won't. Because why? Because I am the Lord your God. Folks, you can hear my voice today. No, that's the same for you. If you've forsaken God your entire life and you've never trusted him, God's there waiting on you. If you've maybe hit a stride of rebellion or a low point in your life and you've turned and gone whichever direction, God's waiting on you to come back. He is the Lord your God. And if you're striving after him and you're not falling into sin, then you just keep running because he's there with you. And wherever you are, know that God is long-suffering and he is patient and that he has provided a method of deliverance for you and he will redeem you. And that's the beauty of this. Israel has made their own bed and they're sleeping in it, but one day there will be restoration. And one day for you there can be restoration. Maybe that's today. It's not just the day you get to heaven and, you know, uh, that's not what we're striving for here. We're striving for tomorrow and today and the next day, living for Christ, living that life more abundant. Guys, eternal life begins now. If you're in Christ, you're experiencing eternal life now. You know that? Your body will, dis- will die one day, and you will, you will be in heaven one day, but you have time on this earth to make a difference. Those of us who have received the good news, let's go give the good news. Those of us who have received uh, mercy and love from another person, let's go give love and mercy to another person. That's what this is about. That's what the Great Commission is. That's why we make disciples, because that's what God has done for us. We want to do that for others. All right, and that's the challenge set before us today. I want to say this, wherever you are, you need to talk to somebody after this worship service. Myself and other pastors of the church are going to be at the hub out in the hallway. We'd love to speak with you. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's each Sunday we're out there. So God bless you. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Lord, thank you for this, this word. Thank you for uh, who you are and thank you for um, your opportunity to bring redemption to us when we don't deserve it, God. Uh, I praise you for the sacrifice that your son paid on the cross to bring us out of darkness and into your light. I pray in Christ's name, amen.